Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. (laughs) Oh, unconditional love. Something we almost universally long for, isn't it? (laughs) Maybe not quite that way. I've I've sat with many uh, couples in premarital counseling over the years and uh, and other premarried couples and asked them the question, what most attracted you to your fiancé? And almost all of them say some variation of unconditional love. The, The one that I hear probably the most is, oh, he sees me at my best and at my worst and he still loves me. And little do premarrieds know that they haven't seen anywhere near the best and the worst yet. <laughs> Blindness is really a beautiful thing, isn't it? It just makes life, it's just a gift. It makes life more exciting sometimes when we're ignorant of things, isn't it? Or they say things like, I have never had anyone love me the way she loves me with no strings attached. Or, or I knew I wanted to marry him when I realized he loved me whether I changed or not. Right? I mean, you type a search into the top reasons people pick somebody to marry and uh, unconditional love, acceptance runs away with the top spot in almost every one of those surveys. And we even have sarcastic culture-shaping jokes, don't we, about how, oh, they never wanted to change me until we got married, right? That happened to Wendy and I. It happens to all of us. I mean, a couple months after we got married, I found out she didn't like the way my hair looked when we got married, and I, it changed. And my one question to her was, why couldn't you have told me this before we spent $500 on wedding pictures? And she's reviewing my message, giving me feedback on it this last week, and she writes back to me saying, "Uh, to be fair, you never asked. And I just assumed you'd have a professional do your hair for our wedding day. That is an Where does that assumption come from? I, I, it took me 28 years to realize that she assumed I would have a professional do my hair on our wedding day. Oh man, obliviousness melts away so slowly sometimes, doesn't it? And isn't it funny in life how we talk about, uh, marriage or relationships and we talk about so often how opposites attract. Opposites attract, right? We think that's, that's just, that's so, that's so interesting because we look at people's and, you know, I can, I can know, uh, people who are, uh, got married and the man came from a home that was very, uh, fairly disconnected, not a lot of rules, a lot of independence. They didn't have to consult the family to do a lot. And he gets in a relationship with a, a, a woman who came from a very enmeshed family where you didn't make a single decision without consulting every member of the family and making sure every member of the family's feelings were good. And then they get married because, well, he likes the closest of her family and she admires the strength of the independence of, of his family and who he is. And then she can't understand why he goes out with the guys after work and never consults her and asks her permission to do that. And he wonders, man, you're so stressed and you say you want some girl time, you want to go out with your friends, but when they offer you, turn them down because you think that... Well, I and the kids aren't going to be okay. And they wonder why they have that conflict and, and it goes on like that, right? Studies say that people want someone in their life, whether it's a friend or it's a family or it's a spouse, who will love them without demanding any change from them, who will accept them for just who they are. And we define that as unconditional love. 
But unconditional love, as we know, breaks down so easy, doesn't it? And it becomes so conditional. And quite frankly, it's so natural for it to do that. Because no matter what premarrieds say, we're going to want to change our spouse, aren't we? We won't be able to help ourselves, actually. It will just come naturally. I mean, even if you married a perfect clone of yourself, which who wants to be married to yourself, you're still going to be asking for change. And because we have this expectation that unconditional love is this thing that doesn't put any pressure to change, it causes our relationships to begin to experience pain and fall apart. Paul, in our text today, redefines for us unconditional love in a way that I think is much more compelling. And he does it through a picture of a groom and a bride, and he shows us how we'll live. Let's look at our text, Ephesians 5, as we continue our way working through Ephesians verse 21. It reads this way. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Lord, we ask that you just come to us uh, now as you've already been here throughout this service. Thank you for that, and thank you that you, we can trust you to bring to mind uh, the thoughts we need to think and the areas where you want to bring greater life to us as a result of today's talk. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. This passage is often and primarily used to talk about marriage, and not without some controversy, is it? If you've been around this passage very long, at first glance, it appears to uh, promote a theology that, uh, we, that many people who call themselves complementarian theologians will say this passage refers to the roles that men and women have, namely that men are the head of the house and the leader and women should be the helper and the follower. And for many of us in our culture today, especially in America, that kind of an idea seems a little bit arcane. It seems like uh, social injustice embodied and, and uh, everything about inequality uh, stuck in our face uh, before us. But to read the text as such overlooks the power of what this text has to say to us, to speak to us, not just in our marriage, but on our relationships, our friendships, our family, our work environment, and what all that means. So we're actually, because it's so important, we're going to actually spend two weeks in this passage. 
Uh, and other than a cursory look, we're not going to talk about the egalitarian and complementarian argument over this passage as far as roles. Now, just for your information, in case you weren't here last fall when we spoke about it, Quest believes in egalitarian theology. And what that means is we believe that women are equal to men in all religious, political, cultural, social respects. Um, and... Uh, If you want to go back and examine that argument and why we believe that biblically, we don't hold that argument because our culture holds it. We hold that because uh, we believe it is the most biblically faithful interpretation of what the Bible teaches. If you want to go back and listen to that series, it's a podcast last September in our series, uh, Relationship Above Differences, a Q&A series, and it's called The Bible and the Role of Women. You can go back and look at that argument. Other than uh, just those cursory comments and, and just the introduction here, I'm not even going to deal with that whole complementary and egalitarian thing. We're going to look at the text from a different way. Today we're going to start in verse 21, which says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, the text is not asserting that its primary purpose is to discuss the egalitarian and complementarian theologies and views of roles of men and women. It's actually something much more practical than that for us. It's wrestling with how we mutually submit to one another, men to women, women to men, uh, church member to church member, friend to friend. And if we read the text in context and read the next passage that immediately follows on this, it's also talking about children to parents and parents to children and, and, uh, and, and employers to employees. And we're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. But, but it, it, it looks at this whole relationship thing and lets us know that it's talking about far more than just marriage in the passage when it says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. This illustration of marriage is to give us a bigger picture of relationship in general. See, this is a practical exposition of how we make all relationships, especially those relationships that dominate the majority of our life that Paul addresses, marriage, family, work, and the church, all work together better. How do we get along and work together in a way that productively honors one another, and Christ. And we get stuck sometimes in the word submission because we equate the word submission with authority and equality, and sometimes it has to do with that. But really, submission in itself is a functional word. It is a word that describes how military units or any group of people relate to each other in a way that helps them work as a team in harmony so that they actually work well and accomplish what they're called to accomplish. They succeed, they win. In a sense, this passage is all about how we win in life in the sense that we learn to experience the fullest measure possible of the goodness and success God wants to bring in all of the relationships of our life. And to that end, Paul uses a picture that gives us many different lessons, and that picture is the picture of marriage So if you aren't married today, I don't want you to get lost in this picture because Paul is talking about all of our relationships, not just marriage. So let's start diving into it deeper by looking at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So what is Paul 
teaching us here? Well, there's a number of things, but I think one of the standout lessons is actually a lesson that's very contrary to our culture, this idea of what unconditional love is. He's saying here in this text that unconditional love comes with an expectation of change. If it doesn't come, if love doesn't come with an expectation of change, it isn't love and it isn't unconditional. The picture he gives us, look at the picture. He says, giving ourselves to another. Why? To make them holy. Now, what did we talk about two weeks ago about the word holiness? We sometimes get stuck in the idea that holy means all this super, super morality that we, we exhibit. And morality is a part of it, but that's not the core of what holy is. Holy means we are set apart. We are treasured. We are the best of the best we can possibly be. We are the beautiful, treasured creation of God and we are restored from the effects of sin to be that original, good, beautiful, perfect, kind creation He intended us for to be, uh, us to be in every aspect of life. Unconditional love, that's what that is. Unconditional love is the unwavering belief, the kind pursuit of another person becoming all God intends for them to be. That's what unconditional love is. And that means change. And it means a lot of change in our lives. So if you have the expectation, as most, so much of our culture does, that unconditional love means acceptance just the way you are, you're not talking about true love. You're not even talking about unconditional love. So how do we give, give this kind of unconditional love to one another? Well, the first point is it's kind of implied in the text that we need to change our expectation of relationships. We need to decide to stop getting upset at the persistent requests of those in our life who are close to us for us to change. And we need to look at understanding what's behind that ire that gets stirred up when we're constantly being asked for change by others. What's that angst? Where does that come from? What's underneath that? You see, shifting this expectation that unconditional love persistently pursues change in us, though, doesn't give us license to hound one another. The text is really clear about that. Just look at it, how the kind and gentle words it uses, the images that Paul gives us. It uses the image of washing with the water through the Word. How many love the refreshing feeling of a shower, shower or love those pictures of paradise where you get to take your shower under, a, under a, a waterfall and how refreshing and beautiful that is? How are our words in other people's lives and our request for change creating that kind of beautiful scenery for them to even want to consider change? Or it's kind of like the kind and patient nurse who's cleaning our wound. It hurts. We don't like it, but we know it needs to be done, and we know they love us, and we know they're doing it the best they can, and so we let them do it. Or without stain, we don't cut stains out. We wash them out. Or without wrinkle, we don't beat the wrinkles out. We just we apply the right amount of warmth and the right amount of, on a, a, with a smooth surface and, and we prepare a nice smooth surface that's padded to put it on. That's how we take wrinkles out of stuff. We don't beat it out. We don't treat it harshly or, or blemishes. We don't remove scars by cutting harshly further. 
do we? We apply the right ointments, the right lotions, and we're gentle and we're patient. Paul is giving us pictures here. And remember, this illustration is not just about marriage. It's about our relationships in general that Paul's talking about. So how are we kind? How are we intentional? How are we persistent? How are we patient in calling out the best in the people around us that we love? What are we doing in our small groups and our friendships and our work environments to call out the best in each other, to create a safe enough place that people are willing to open up and be encouraged and exhorted in their places of weakness to grow and become the person God created them to be? That's what Paul is helping us deal with. The next question Paul helps us wrestle with as one of his lessons in the text could be uh, framed in this question. What is it that causes you to bristle when somebody asks you to change persistently? What drives our tendency to react in the first place and to then errantly define unconditional love as not asking me to change, treating me just as I am? What's that angst that comes up when we're asked for that change? Paul in the text talks about, I think, what is probably the primary thing. I'm sure it's not the only thing that drives that angst in us. But I think it's the primary thing, and he's talking about when we lack this, we have this hole in ourselves that that is not filled. And and when when we're asked for change, it drives this this ire, this angst in us that, that becomes defensive. And what he's talking about is forgiveness. He talks about it in the text when he talks about washing, cleansing, and blameless. He, he's even more explicit about it a few verses earlier in cha- at the end of chapter 4 where he says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. You see, the bristle when we're asked to change in us comes from the fact that we are not fully aware of both our need for forgiveness and that we are indeed forgiven. As a result, we have this drive of insecurity that crops up in in our struggle to put off the old and put on the new. And when we're asked for changes, we have this reaction that says, I am no good, I am a failure, I am not good enough. And our heart responds with a defensive fight. And so we live life in a self-protective mode. As St. Augustine and Luther say, we curve in on ourselves. It becomes self-centered. We live self-protectively, protecting our identity. And because of that, it causes our relationships to begin to break down and have problems. Not convinced that's the case? Well, when's the last time when you were asked for change in an area that you said or thought, yeah, but I'm not so bad? Or... Why don't you ever see the good? Or you always focus on the negative in me, right? When somebody said something. Or, well, you're not so good either. How many times you thought that or wanted to say that? Or you thought, what I did wasn't that bad compared to... You see, self-protection, defensiveness, speaks to a heart that doesn't believe it's fully forgiven. Defensiveness betrays that our hearts are still curved in ourselves in self-protection rather than being able to be free to be curved out towards others to give that unconditional love away on a regular basis. And it begs the question, are you content with your sin? Now that's a weird question. 
That's a strange question, isn't it? Are you content with your sin? Content not in the sense of approving, not in the sense of satisfied, not in the sense of pleased in any manner with your sin, but are you content with the fact that you have looked deep enough into your own sin, stared it in the face enough, even come to the point where you fully realize that I've looked at it so deeply and I know there's far more sin in me than I can ever even understand or see, and yet there's something inside of you that's settled. You're content with the fact that you are forgiven, that you can look that stuff right in the face and you can still have a heart that's free of shame and guilt because you are forgiven, because you are loved, because you are secure, because your identity is in Christ. There's no defensiveness left. There's no threat. You're content because God's unfathomable, infinite power to forgive you is so real to the to you that you are so loved. The needs of your heart are so secure that whether your spouse or your parent or your boss ever gives you love or not, you are able to be free to love them. And when they do give you love, you're still able to enjoy it when they give it to you. That's the level of freedom that Paul is inviting us to, that level of security and the unconditional love of Christ that only comes when we realize our depth of need for forgiveness and we're content having looked at that in Christ's forgiveness for us. And only then does that actually free us to give the kind of unconditional love that we all long for, the kind of stuff that we want other people to give us, that we want to give to others, to, to believe the best in another person, even when they're stuck in the mud of sin, to, to pursue a person in kindness and love, even when they are doing things that should, by all human standards, hurt us and repel us, we still stay engaged like Jesus did in His love. You see, the Bible doesn't say husbands love your wives when they're lovable and if they're mean, you're free not to love them. The Bible doesn't say wives respect your husbands only when they're respectable and if they're not, then you're free to do whatever you want. The Bible doesn't say that you can be committed to church or committed to your relationships. You can serve and you can give only when the church is, is not offending you or only when the church is meeting your needs. And if it's not, then you can go ahead and switch churches and change relationships and start over again. That's not the kind of love Jesus is inviting us to or asking us to give. The kind of love Jesus gave is what he's asking us to give. The kind that's not initiated based upon another's response. You see, what we see in amazingly beautiful marriages that last a long time is the regular expression of one-way love, of choosing to love even when the other person is not reciprocating that love. See, marriages and families that fall apart, they all come to this point where there's this turning point because of pain where that initial desire to love like we did when we were all enamored and we were blind and we say all those statements that I said up front gets switched by pain. And all of a sudden we turn in on ourselves and we become self-protective. We don't give the forgiveness and we don't receive the forgiveness. We keep beating ourselves up for our own failures in that point. 
And Paul's inviting us to be givers of the overwhelming kind of grace that some of you may have experienced. If you ever in your life did something so horribly wrong, so horribly bad, that you should have caused your world to fall apart, that you gave everybody around you the right, the perfect reasonable right to not only punish you but to leave you. But they didn't. They stayed. They didn't just stay. They forgave you. They didn't just forgive you, but they were your constant cheerleader to change and to grow and to become better. You see, that is the change-empowering, unconditional love that Paul invites us to. You see, but we see, we see we've, we've, we've all created rules, ideas of relationship that go counter to that. We've created loving relationship rules that are more aligned with our own fears and our own self-protection than they are with this kind of love. We have mental scorecards we keep because we say, but we live in a broken world. And if we give too much, I might be taken advantage of. I might be hurt. Well, yes. And Jesus answers that in Matthew 5 when he says this. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And in Luke 6, Jesus tells us when we learn to do that kind of love, here's the reward. He says in Luke 6, 37, he says, Do not judge. You will not be judged. Do not condemn. And you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Pressed down, good measure, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. With the measure you use of forgiveness, of love, of kindness, of persistent pursuit of that relationship, it will be measured to you in amazingly rich, overflowing, packed down, beautiful kind of life and kind of relationships that you can never even imagine. But we're afraid, we're afraid to be that risky because we think if someone repeatedly does me wrong, maybe if I give them the silent treatment, Or maybe if I distance myself from them, they will learn their lesson. Or at least, if they don't learn their lesson, they'll at least feel the pain of what I've felt. And maybe that pain, just maybe that pain someday will help them to hit bottom and they'll change, right? And you see, what we're saying is that by not being gracious, by not forgiving, we think that pain and pressure is what sets people free. We think that expectation and law is what sets people free. And Paul wrote several other letters to us in the Bible, most of which were addressed at that idea that law does not set us free. Expectation doesn't set us free. It crushes us. It kills happiness. It kills motivation. It doesn't create freedom. Yet tit-for-tat rules and wanting to help create the pain for someone to hit bottom and make others pay affect all of our thinking at some level. And it betrays the unforgiveness of our hearts and the lack of receiving the forgiveness of God. See, there are grown children among us who have a difficult time ever wanting to even talk to your parents because you can't get out of your mind that 
voice, whether rightly interpreted or wrongly interpreted, where you were told you're never going to be good enough. Or someone offended you years ago and, and you see them in the parking lot or they want to friend you on Facebook and you just, you know, you just, it makes you bristle inside. You don't want to even go near them, have anything to do with them. And the best you can say is, I will forgive them when they ask for it and demonstrate a desire for change. See, we create these 50-50 rules of relationship. I'll meet them halfway. If you give to me, I will give to you. And what we're saying is achievement precedes acceptance and forgiveness. But that's not, that's not the love Jesus is demonstrating for us and what Paul is illustrating for us in our illustration today. Jesus' love precedes our achievement. Jesus' love and forgiveness is freely given before any action or response on our part. Jesus' love is not a 50-50 proposition. It's 100% all in. And he gives it as one-way love even if the forgiveness is never received. Even if the love is never received. You see, relationship insecurity and fear mark us all. And it's based on our lack of ability to forgive and believe that we are forgiven. What would it feel like for all of that burden to go away? What would it feel like to forgive others and live free regardless of their actions? To never have to have a defensive response again? There's a great article written by Laura Munson about her own life in the New York Times in 2009. It was titled, Those Aren't Fighting Words, Dear. And it, I think, it gives a, a great illustration of the power of forgiveness and a secure identity and how it can affect us. Laura tells, tells in the story, she says our, we, she was married at the time uh, over two decades and happily married. Everything was going great, had their beautiful family, beautiful property out in Montana, had achieved most of the dreams they had dreamed of in life. And by her account, everything was pretty happy and family was going great. And her husband comes home one day and says, I don't love you anymore. I'm not sure I ever did. I'm moving out. The kids will understand. They'll want me to be happy. Fighting words. But because she had settled enough of her identity, the article goes on to describe how she didn't beg. She didn't kowtow to the man. She didn't attempt to please all of the anger and respond to that. She didn't even take all of the issues that were present in their marriage and him necessarily as her own issues. In fact, many of the issues were really his own personal struggle issues at that point in his life. And she initially responded to his statements with, I don't buy it that you don't love me in believing the best in him. She loved intentionally with really good, strong boundaries of a person who knows her identity and knows she's loved and forgiven, but she loved him with the kind of one-way love that Jesus initiates towards us. And over the next six months of their life, she let him make the choices, whether he stayed engaged or not. She would continue to plan fun activities. And if he came, he came. And if he didn't, he didn't. And either way, it was going to be fine, and they had fun. Oh, she talks honestly. I mean, she had her up and down days. She had the days where she wasn't so good at, you know, giving this kind of in, uh, unconditional love where she fell to the arguing and complaining. But on the whole, she stayed pretty strong. Night after night, she'd set the table for four 
If he showed, he showed. And if he didn't, he didn't. And she didn't make a big deal of it. She just continued to do intentionally loving actions, whether they were accepted or not. And one day she describes in the fall, he came home from work earlier than normal because he'd been used to staying late because he was avoiding life and avoiding the family, and he mowed the lawn. And he fixed the door that needed to be fixed for the last eight years. Nobody has that on their to-do list, do they? And he... And a few weeks later, he started talking about the need for firewood for the winter. And then at Thanksgiving, he bowed his head at prayer and he gave thanks for the love of his marriage and the love of his family. Their marriage endured and is stronger than it ever was. Stories like this inspire us. And what Jesus and Paul are inviting us to is a pathway to live in this kind of unconditional love that changes lives and writes a better ending to the story of our relationships than we could ever imagine on our own when we follow the way the world teaches us about chemistry and loving me if you don't ask me to change kind of philosophies. What would it feel like for each of us to be so deeply accepted and so deeply overwhelmed by the forgiveness of God that we would never have the need to, criti- to, to have defensiveness when somebody criticized our character or asked us for change. You see, in the face of your sin and other people's sin towards you, to be so content, so settled, so solid and secure, knowing who you are and that you're forgiven, knowing your identity, knowing that your needs are so met that even when your spouse or your parent or your boss is a jerk, you can respond in love without defensiveness, free to love regardless of their actions and free to receive the joy of their love when they do give it. So the kind of love Jesus, this is the kind of love Jesus is calling us to live and it supersedes any and all expectations we can form on our own through any kind of definition the world gives us as far as unconditional love. And it comes with a powerfully motivating, hopeful expectation that we will change because God sees the best in us and so do the people around us. And that's the kind of love He wants us to experience. Can you imagine what it would be like to experience that? See, God's not keeping a scorecard. He's not reminding us a thousand times a day of how we lack, is He? Instead, He's actively loving you right where you're at, right now, speaking to you the amazing promises of the hope of a bright future that He wants to empower you to become the best He ever thought possible, far better than you can even think possible for your own life. And God's saying to you, I know all you have ever thought, all you've ever done, all you've wanted to do, and I love you and I forgive you. And we see this love demonstrated in the story Jesus tells in the prodigal son. He takes the inheritance. The prodigal son takes his father's inheritance and goes away and does horrible, horrendous things with it, blows it all, ends up with absolutely less than nothing. And he sheepishly trudges back thinking maybe I'll at least get the lowest of positions possible and maybe he'll give me a morsel of bread because he doesn't even believe he deserves that, but that's all he can hope for. But when his father sees him, what does he do? Does he say nothing until his son apologizes? No. 
Does he say, we need to go to the confessional and we need to get it all on the table. It all has to be out on the table before we can go any further. No, he doesn't do that. He throws the party of all parties because he's basically saying to us in that the sins you cannot forget, I won't remember. I do not remember. I'm concerned only with loving you to become the best that I created you to be. You see, we're unbelievable at causing people to remember their sins. But we're even more unbelievable at causing ourselves to remember our own sins. But the only way we get to unconditional love and the only way we get to freedom and the picture of life that we long for is to both fully receive forgiveness and to fully give that forgiveness even when it's not asked for. And that's the question for us today. Will we do that today? Will we receive God's forgiveness and give God's forgiveness? Worship team, come on. If you're here today and you're a person who hasn't made that all-in decision to follow Jesus, you've been searching for it, this is what he's calling you to. And, And I would dare to say from having talked with so many people that you're probably holding back from that decision because you don't feel you're worthy of God loving you the way we've described today. But you are loved right now in that very way. I want to invite you today to take that step of accepting that love and experience that. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would come right now to each and every one of us. And not just for those who have not made a decision to follow you, who are wanting to make that decision. Lord, I pray that you'd come to each of them right now, that your Spirit would flood them and they would know your love and your presence. But for all of us, the areas where we struggle to forgive ourselves and to let your forgiveness become so secure that we no longer have to fight and defend. We no longer have to cover things up, but we can be open and honest and we can be free. Lord, I pray that you would make that real to each one of us, even more real than it has been. Lord, I pray that you'd come as well for those people that we have been unable to forgive or unwilling to forgive and that you would soften our hearts that we can learn to give the kind of unconditional love that believes the best even when someone has hurt us so deeply and that we can forgive. Holy Spirit, just come. We welcome you. Continue to engage God around that thought, those thoughts while we worship. Thank you for joining us this morning, and I'm going to fall over here. Um, if you came and there's something God's been speaking to you about where you need to forgive or where you need to receive forgiveness, I'd recommend having a friend pray with you. If you uh, don't have somebody you can turn to, you know, that wants to pray, we'll have some people in the back that can pray. But let God come into that moment and experience him in that moment. How else does his forgiveness become real except when sometimes we experience it together in prayer? 
So take opportunity to do that today before you leave. If you came here with a need for healing or a need for a job or a need for any other relationship need or anything you want prayer for, we would love to do that. Uh, But let's just go this week and let's trust in his forgiveness. And let's see what that does. Every time your ire comes up when somebody asks for change, look look inward and say, God, where do I not trust your forgiveness? And see how that changes it this week for you. If you have time to stay, we're going to be immediately following doing transformation for VBS. There's going to be a bunch of people who can tell you what to do if you have a few minutes to stay. But have a great week. God bless. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at go to quest.org.